This podcast is a production of the Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, visit our website at www.communitycovenant.net. This morning, our scripture is going to be read from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. And Ralph, we're not supposed to have favorites, but it always makes me smile a little extra when you're reading. Amen? (laughs) They devoted themselves to the apostles, teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Thank you, Ralph. All right. Good morning. I got uh, several pages here I need to pull out and spread out here. Give me one second. We, uh, over the past several weeks... Pastor Todd has been um, going over our mission statement, what it is we feel as a church that God has called us to do together. And uh, starting last week now, we're looking at our values. And if you've been around here a few years, you maybe remember we went through the church vitality process. It's something our denomination has helped us with. And in that was the 10 missional markers of a healthy missional church. And those 10 missional markers have now been what we've adopted is what we want to be our values. And so it's, it's how we're going to accomplish the mission, the manner in which we're going to accomplish the mission. And specifically, I've been given the task uh, to talk about compelling Christian community. And with that, I almost was going to have people move up. You're right, you know, move up, but that's okay. You can stay where you're at. I know some of you. Yeah, I'd like to read a little story. Anybody ever, ever heard of the guy named Danny Wallace? He's a writer. Well, Danny Wallace, he was inspired by a relative who tried to start a pacifist community on a farm. He was a Swedish guy. Uh, but he wasn't successful. So uh, Danny Wallace was a writer and he put an ad in the local paper that read this. Join me. That's it. Join me. Send a photo, passport size photo, to this address. And uh, he says, uh, it was a piece of whimsy, a silly half project, but thanks to a huge and diverse group of perfect strangers, it became something much bigger. I'm still trying to work out how. Because what he was shocked is he started getting lots of people's photographs. All he did was say, join me. Somewhat to Wallace's surprise, the advertisement attracted a large number of people. As the group grew, Wallace was put under pressure by its members to explain its purpose. 
I, I find that fascinating. It's not even any purpose. But a bunch of people said, yeah, I'll, I'll join. So, uh, has anybody ever heard of the random acts of kindness? Apparently, that's something that they started. Their group started doing that on Fridays. They called them Good Fridays. And what they encouraged their members, they would have join meets. Join meets. They called it a collective. And what they would do together is they would practice random acts of kindness. And they would do it on Fridays and eventually it spread. But thousands of people joined. I think it's a great illustration of the innate drive in us to belong. And to want to have purpose. We want to belong somewhere. So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, I want to share a story. I think this was junior high. And I don't, for whatever reason, it, when I was in junior high, that, they loved to give us these uh, like value judgment things. What do they used to call those things? Anyway, life value judgment. Uh, I forget what they call them. Values clarification. Something like that. Values clarification. We were given a whole list of things like successful career, uh, you know, really good education, and all these things that you could get in life if you worked really hard. And you were supposed to rate your top five. Well, I come from a family of five kids, okay? And uh, it, it didn't even cross my mind for some reason to put good family life on my list. There was a girl in my class, her name was Kim. I'm guessing Kim didn't come from a good family. She just seemed like that kind of a person who didn't have a good family life. And it wasn't until I saw that at the top of her list, which I thought was really interesting, because she didn't seem like the type that would value that. Now, looking back now, I realize it's because she didn't have it, right? It's at the top of her list, and I was just kind of, oh, I didn't even think about that. That's probably important. Good family life, yeah? Well, as I got older, and I, I don't want to disparage my family. I've got a good family. But as I get older and you get wiser and you, you, get, to see, you get to see that there's places where the family system's broken. And I certainly have that in my family. And things aren't quite right. But I compare those two stories because, uh, you know, some of us, I'm sure, in this room, uh, you know, we run the gamut on the types of family we came from. And sometimes the idea of growing close as a family sounds like a scary thing. And so, uh, you know, somebody put an ad in the paper that says, join me. It's like, uh uh-uh, I'm not joining nothing, right? And we live with this tension where we have this innate desire to want to belong and to be a part of a group. And yet, for a lot of us, sometimes that hasn't been a great experience. And yet, in the body of Christ, we're called to be a community, and I have to be honest, uh, sometimes uh, I feel like I have a great taste of that, and other times I'm not quite sure what it means. I'm a pastor, but I feel like I've, I've grown up in, in you know, Western culture and Alaskan culture, and what we value is independence, not necessarily community and belonging. And so I feel like the frog in the proverbial you know, kettle that boils, and I, I don't even realize I've been boiled in this individualistic idea And yet what God has called me to and called us all to is be a part of a community. So uh, as we looked at this passage today, well, let me stop there. Jim Collins, 
He's a guy who's written books for businesses, and he's written some books that are pretty well-known. One of them was called From Good to Great. In his book, he talks about uh, goals, and that there's true core goals, and there's goals of aspiration, which means that sounds good, but let's be honest, we're not quite there yet. And I'm going to go out, I'm not very far, I don't have to go very far out in this land to realize, would, I, would it be true that when we talk about uh, I've got to get my wording right here. I'm going to be in trouble. Compelling. That's the word I... Compelling Christian community that for a lot of us, me included, that's a little bit of an aspirational goal. Right? If we're honest. Okay, thank you. All right. Good. Well, and as you look at this passage, I mean, man, talk about ideal. I mean, they had it, it looks like they had it in spades a little bit. So much so that some scholars, they look at that and say, well, that's not really for us. That's like an idealized community. And uh, where I don't think it's uh, prescriptive, in other words, it's not saying this is how you have to do it. I think for us, this is history. This is the history of the church of which we belong. And so it's descriptive. It's encouraging us. What do we have to do? What are some of the elements that we can have so that we can have a compelling Christian community as well? So I'm just going to make three observations this morning, okay? Three observations, and I got my little clicker so I can pull my slides up. And you're going to see right away, these are not particularly profound. They really aren't, when, okay? But they can have profound meaning for us, Okay? So the first one is a compelling Christian community is rooted in a compelling narrative. Uh, when you look up what a community is, it's about shared values or shared experiences or something like that. So, so it's, like, it's like a community gathers around an idea or a story. And for a compelling Christian community, we've gathered around a very compelling narrative. Now, when you look at the text that we just read, actually that Ralph read for us, the very first line is, says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What do you suppose the apostles talked about? I can just imagine they're sitting around, and maybe it's, it's uh, John's turn to get up and speak. And Peter's like, hey, John, tell about that time. That we, uh, we ran into that Samaritan woman. That's a good one. Tell that one. Tell them what Jesus said. Tell them what Jesus did. Tell them how surprised we were. Tell about the time that we ran into those lepers. And we were, we were terrified. Tell them about the time we were out on the lake. And Jesus calmed the storm with his words. One of the narratives that it took a while for the disciples to learn was who this man Jesus was, first off. You remember in that story where they're out on the, on the waves in Mark chapter 5, when they see Jesus calm the storm, that question they ask, who is this man, the, even the waves? Because the idea of the creator God Right? Would come as a man like, like you and I? It's just mind boggling. Because we're, we're aware of our, our frailty. We're aware, aware of our weakness. 
and our limitations. And if God could create all this, if he can speak into existence, why in the world, why in the world would he become a man? And what they discovered as they followed Jesus around is this thing kept happening over and over again. And that as the people that we would assume are marginalized, people that are cast out, people who don't measure up, for some reason Jesus keeps reaching out to them, to the Samaritan woman, to children that he gathers, to the leper, to the tax collector. And here's the, here's the, the, the truth of that is that for Jesus, each individual was infinitely valuable to him. Infinitely valuable. We live in a world, people aren't always very valuable. Our culture has actually been influenced quite a bit by the Judeo-Christian value system. So we have this idea that we're all created equal. And I'm not, I'm not placing any political whatever on this, but, you know, like black lives matter. Why do they matter? Because we're created equal. That's the idea. And fortunately, in our world, we aren't treated equal. We still have that same broken system where we put value judgments on people. And for, Je- for Jesus, people were valuable, and therefore he came. So this is really critical. Jesus didn't make you and I valuable when he died for us. He died for us because we're valuable to him. Because we're image bearers of God. Created, meant to have relationship with him. Image bearers that can reflect his glory as we relate to him. And so Jesus was willing to to demonstrate the value, not just demonstrate, but prove it by giving his very life for us. See, that was completely new. In, um, in Jesus' time, you would never have an organization called Black Lives Matter. In fact, you might have an organization called Black Lives Don't Matter, and Women Don't Matter, and Kids Don't Matter. It just didn't matter. There's this whole idea of people being equal, it just wasn't there. And Jesus turned that upside down. The other thing he did is he, uh, he made it clear that your station in life didn't matter in terms of being able to relate with him. Hey, you know, I don't know where you're all at this morning. I, I know some of you a little bit. There's a lot of you I don't know. Do you know that Jesus values you regardless of your station in life, regardless of what you've done? That is the message of the gospel. It's the narrative by which we live. So as a community, the narrative becomes very, very important. The other thing about Jesus that he was really good at is he never, he never had this, uh, th- these people are in and those people are out. and There's us and them. There's the haves and the haves not. Right? He didn't look at people that way. In fact, the people he got frustrated with is the people who insisted that's the way it had to be, the religious leaders. They were determined to make it. So it's us versus them. It's really interesting. So Jesus' disciples have been with him for a while, and you see that language come in 
I'm always fascinated. I think I, I'm not positive of the reference. I think it's around John chapter nine. But this is after the Good Samaritan story. This is after disciples have been with Jesus for a while, and they stop in a Samaritan town, and the Samaritan town doesn't want them. So James and John, thinking that they're doing a good thing, say, Lord, should we just call down, you know, help, fire, and brimstone on these people? See, they are not like us. They don't get us. Us and them, and Jesus chastises them. And another incident... They go to Jesus and say, hey, we found this guy. He's casting out demons in your name. He's not one of us. He says, no. Jesus says, anybody who is for us is not against us. Who's anybody who calls on the name of Jesus can also be against us. So Jesus eradicates that kind of language, the us and them kind of language. Paul, in his letters to the Galatians, he says it like this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is... Neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So for the people living in Jerusalem, this is right after Pentecost. And I'm going to review it here in a minute, but this is right after Pentecost and, and they're starting a new life together. It is so revolutionary. This idea that Jesus sets them free from all that stuff, from their sin, sets them free from being in that any kind of a caste system. And he essentially says, I want you. You're my child. So that's the narrative by which they're living. It's a completely different than what they have been brought up in. So uh, when we look at our mission statement for our church, it doesn't say our mission is to bring hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Am I right? That's not quite what it says. What it says is our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. To me, that word is so huge. You see... There could be lots of organizations that can bring hope, healing, and wholeness. They don't even have to be Christian. You could bring good things. But ultimately, the kind of life that Jesus wants to bring comes by power. In Acts, the previous chapter, Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. And it provides a much deeper level of hope and of healing through the person of Christ. And so, one of the things that can, can, can make us, our community, be compelling is we have this compelling sense of our relationship with Jesus, that he's present, that he continues to guide and lead us. And that we don't succumb to this idea of, of that what we are is just a religion that has certain practices and things that we follow. Because apart from the person of Jesus, we're just another religion, really. You remember when, when uh, one of Jesus' disciples said, look, just show us the way to the Father. Remember what Jesus says? John fourteen six. he says, I am the truth, the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
So, quick question for me and for you. What narrative, what narrative is my life telling? What narrative is, is our church telling? I remember uh, I was in ministry and they started talking. Uh, oh, it was like it was a big, huge fad to talk about postmodernism. Like, they go to conferences and they talk about postmodernism. And, and it was unclear what anybody, nobody knew what they were actually talking about. But one of the, just, it's kind of esoteric, but one of the descriptions of the postmodern, post what it is, is uh, that I've heard. Okay, this is not, I didn't make this up, but it's the lack of of the meta-narrative. And what that means is, there is no overarching story that defines who I am and who you are and how we relate. Everybody gets to make up their own story. There is no meta-narrative anymore. We're not a Judeo-Christian nation. Okay? Now we can argue that point. But see, for us who know Jesus Christ, that is our meta-narrative. That defines who we are. That defines what reality is. And it's not right because I think so or because you think so. It's because Jesus Christ has revealed himself in history. So what's the narrative of my life and of your life? What narrative do we tell? All right. Next one. Compelling Christian community is characterized... By love for one another. Have you guys ever heard something like that before? See, like I said, it's not particularly profound. But what we saw in the passage when Ralph read it out loud, let me just read a couple of these verses in again. It says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So you can see that their resources, their energy was given out to, to going outward to the community, to the people around them, serving them in the same way that Jesus' love went out. I still remember, I think I could be wrong, I think it was Maddie, one of our, one of our young ladies that sings on the worship team. But she went to Chick and she, she shared in a video that we showed about how she realized that loving your enemy or your neighbor wasn't about just playing nicey-nice, being polite. Loving them is about investing my resources that God has given me to serve them. Here's the thing that's implied in this passage too. It doesn't say it directly, but I believe it. Because I don't think you could have what you had there if you don't also have things like forgiveness, forbearance, right? That there's reconciliation that happens. One of the things that scholars say was remarkable about this particular gathering of people is uh, just like Jesus taught, hey, you know, when you go to a party, don't, don't sit at the most important seat. Offer that to somebody else. Wait till the guest invites you to come up. And so you had suddenly a gathering of people where previously what was important in terms of social caste and everything kind of went out the window. People were eager to serve one another. 
People were eager to forgive one another because they had tasted the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the thing that's uh, really important about this. Or let me let me just back up and just say that, you know, um, there's a lot of times where loving, playing nicey-nice is easy, but, you know, sometimes it's really hard. Forgiveness can be tough when somebody's hurt us. But here's the thing that's really key about that. Remember, Jesus said, by this will everyone know that you're my followers if you love one another. See, that's a love of action. Jesus doesn't give us the option someplace that it's okay to not forgive some people. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive, but they really hurt me. And in fact, back in John 17, um, this is where Jesus is praying. Did you know that Jesus prays for us? He prays for us in John 17. He says this, I'm not praying only for them, but also for those who believe in me because of their word. I pray they will be one, Father, just as you and are in me and I am in you. I pray that they also will be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. You see the point that Jesus, well, the point that we can draw from that. Our ability to love one another, our ability to forgive one another, our ability to reconcile, our ability to to recognize what each other needs and move to that, to be moved by love like Jesus was moved for us, is the evidence that Jesus is who he says he is. You see? Because if somebody comes in the door and they just experience the same thing that we've experienced anyplace else. Have you guys ever gone to a, uh, like a restaurant? You know, they say that in America we have a, uh, what is it, a service, service-oriented industry, Right? So you'll go into a fast food place or something, and the person will say, Hi, welcome. How can I serve you? And I think, wow, they're really friendly. They don't even know me. And then, uh, you know, I'm standing off the side waiting for my order, and then what I hear is, a, yeah, I know, can you believe he did that? He's a jerk. You know what he did yesterday? What he came, you know, completely different. You think people ever experience that when they go to church? They see an ad someplace, come experience the grace of Jesus. They go and then, and then they say, wow, these people, they're just, they're just the same as anywhere else I go. The way that you and I relate to one another at Community Covenant Church testifies to who Jesus is. That's a heavy responsibility, but a great joy couple verses down he says i'm in them and you are in me so that they will be made perfectly one then the world will know see we're one then the world will know that you sent me and that you have loved them just as you loved me we give evidence that we're loved by god that we've tasted it by our ability to love one another I've been thinking a lot lately about the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, 
Has anybody ever just prayed on your own? I know that there's some people in our church that do. Doesn't it feel a little bit weird? You start off, your, your, let's say you're, you're in your prayer closet or on a walk, whatever, and the first word out of your mouth is what? Our. See, it's a community prayer. Disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. And he taught them a prayer that they prayed together. I've been thinking about it. Uh, that it, 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 More and more, it seems like a kingdom prayer. And he talks about the kingdom right in the beginning of it, doesn't he? I got away from my slide there. Sam, I might need your help. You have this, the slide that says, Our Father? There it is. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So it's that, it's that community prayer. And what's the prayer? Jesus, may your kingdom be here like it is there. Then what follows? The kingdom. What does the kingdom look like? Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sins against us. Well, if this is a community prayer and we're sitting together. And as I, I pray, give us this day our daily bread. And my brother or sister next to me is hungry. See, I, I have to be moved if I've been touched by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ to meet that need. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Well, isn't that awkward when the person next to you is the person you've been having a fight with? And you had to pray this prayer outside out loud together. You know, forgiveness is not an option. It, it may be a process, right? My hope and my prayer today, if it's true, that how we relate to one another testifies to who Jesus is, that we will be more committed to loving one another. And if today there's somebody we feel like, you know what, I need to make it right with them, that you'll start the process. Start the process. Sam, do I have compelling Christian community, a spirit-filled community? There it is. So my third observation Compelling Christian community is a spirit-filled community. Now, I say, where, where in the passage did I get that? I didn't see anything about the spirit in there. Well, I mentioned earlier, this is right after Pentecost. In fact, you can almost diagram chapter 2 of Acts. Because the disciples in chapter 1, Jesus says, You will receive power when my Holy Spirit comes, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and other parts of the earth. And so they're holed up in, the, in this room someplace, and they're praying, and they're waiting, and the Spirit comes in power, chapter 2, verses 1 through about 12 or 13. And what we see in that first section is the sign of the Spirit, the sign of the power of the Spirit being poured out on His church. And then from about 13 or 14 to about 41, it's the message of the Spirit. Peter speaks a message, right? And we see the, the ministry of the Spirit in that. As he convicts people and their hearts are changed. And then in verse 42 through 47 that we read this morning, that's life in the Spirit. A compelling Christian community has life in the Spirit of God. 
And if you're wondering, how am I going to forgive somebody? How am I going to love somebody? How am I going to do that? Well, we need to rely on God's Spirit, the transforming power of God to work in our hearts and lives. And that's how we're going to do it. Because I can't do it on my own. I don't think any of us can do it on our own. So the Spirit of God is present, active, and working. And the Spirit of God is what brings the reality of the presence of Christ. Do you remember when Christ was alive, he told his disciples, he goes, you know, they're, they're fretting, they're worrying, they're trying to figure out what's going on. This is just before he goes to the cross. And he says, I will come to you. And in parallel today, he's talking about the Spirit coming. That the Spirit brings the presence of Jesus. Sometimes, you know, um, if, if I'm nervous, let's say I have to speak in front of church or something like that. I can almost imagine Jesus is right there. And all I have to do is just speak to Jesus because he's present. The power of Jesus Christ. One of the things I've really appreciated, because I came from a tradition. Growing up, I grew up in the church, and I came from a tradition that we talked about the Holy Spirit. But we were very suspicious of anything that the Spirit might do, right? And I'm not talking about something weird. I'm talking about just being conscious, and I love this about the Evangelical Covenant Church, about that conscious, that pietist uh, roots that we have, a conscious dependence that the Holy Spirit is present and moving and bringing the life of Jesus to bear in my heart and in yours. So when we gather, we're not just meeting, but we're encountering. In fact, one of the words I used a long time in talking about worship is, I want to encounter God through his spirit. I want to be changed. So we lean into that by faith. We all have to have faith in something. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. And what I want to invite us to do as we close is to say a kingdom prayer together. Could we do that? And by that, of course, I mean the Lord's Prayer. So I'm going to invite you to stand. Let's invite God to move in us as Community Covenant Church, as a community. Let's, uh, let's increase our aspiration to be a compelling Christian, Christian community that gives testimony to the power and the love of Jesus Christ. Can I hear an amen for that? Amen. So let's, let's pray this together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.